These counties have seen the lion's share of the state's epidemic. The rules are different here. The timeline is uh, we don't have a timeline. South Florida struggles with how to open safely. I think a lot of people are concerned that we're moving too fast. Parks and public spaces open even as non-essential businesses stay closed. And the debate intensifies over how fast to reopen. We're doing the best we can with the system we've got. Unemployment relief still a waiting game. It just goes round and round. You get nowhere. As Florida tops the nation in jobless claims. We can't stay the way we are right now indefinitely. And South Florida works to stop the spread. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney. I'm Glenna Milberg. Welcome. New month, new rules. A reopening started this week with a patchwork of differences by border, similar to how closings unfolded more than a month ago. This morning, boaters are lining up at marinas for the first Sunday since the counties opened them this week, along with parks and golf courses to get people outdoors, but with some new normal rules in place. And those rules regulate the number of boats that can be on a launching ramp from a marina, the number of people who can be in the boats, and there is always the ongoing requirement for social distancing. But that hasn't seemed to deter people. Trent <laughs> Kelly is live at Crandon Park Marina in Key Biscayne today. Trent, what's it look like out there? Well, Glenna, Michael, it may look quiet behind me right now, but that's only because this particular marina actually reached its capacity a couple of hours ago. Trust me, it was a much different story earlier this morning with some of these boaters waiting in line for up to five hours just for the chance to get back out on the water. We got here at one o'clock. There was nobody out here. Boaters looking to beat the crowds, lining up well before sunrise at Crandon Park Marina this morning. This weekend proving to be a busy one for boating as people in Miami-Dade and Broward counties rush to take advantage of newly reopened parks and marinas. The very first phase of what's promised to be a gradual reopening process. But while the marinas are clearly busy, some boaters say it's not nearly as crowded out on the water. Less boats out, um, a lot of enforcement, but for the most part, it, you know, there wasn't too many boats out. It was a good time. Part of that enforcement effort includes the addition of several police officers at marinas, making sure all boaters are following the guidelines, which include limiting each boat to only 10 people or less and only allowing one boat at a time to launch at a ramp. Anyone going out onto the water must also have a mask. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's what I'm going to be wearing when I'm in that ramp dropping my boat, yeah, the mask. Yeah, those masks, of course, very important as well. We saw several officers walking up to people at several marinas this weekend. If they were not wearing a mask, if you are caught not following any one of those guidelines, you could be issued a warning and asked to leave the park. For now, that's the very latest from Key Biscayne. Glenna, Michael, back over to you. Trent, thanks very much. All right, the need for much more testing and contact tracing is at the center of a debate over when and how fast Florida can reopen. And one of those making that call is South Florida Congressman Ted Deutsch, who included that in a report to the White House this week. He was among the lawmakers appointed to the president's Opening Up America Again advisory board. And Congressman Deutsch is Skyping in with us from Boca Raton. Congressman, I feel your pain. There is no barbershop, no salon <laughs> open. You're looking good. The beard is the beard's on point today. Thank Thanks so much for being with us. 
Thanks for uh, putting it that way, Glenn. I appreciate it. Nice to be with you. So yeah. the first the first question, really, in that report, you had mentioned and made a big point of the fact that more testing needs to be done per capita before the opening process. And, and yet, so much of the country, 16 states, I think, including uh, ours right here, Governor DeSantis is opening everywhere but South Florida um, tomorrow. So, so give us your thoughts on that. Uh, well, thanks for having me. And, and I, I just, if I can, spend just uh, a second at the top um, joining you and all of the viewers and acknowledging how incredibly difficult this has been for our community, for uh, for the state, uh, for the nation, actually for the whole globe. The 1,400, almost 1,400 people have lost their lives in, in Florida, uh, over 65,000 around the country. It's devastating. The economic impact is devastating. So. As we look to move forward, uh, we've got to make sure that we go forward carefully in a way that listens to the public health experts. And, and on testing, it's there's so much talk about whether we have enough tests or whether we don't have enough tests. It's not just how many we have. Uh, it's true, there needs to be a testing and tracing plan. And the estimates are that we need to be able to do 5,000 tests, uh, 5,000 tests, 5 million tests rather, uh, per day, and we're nowhere close to that. We're doing several hundred thousand. But the, the question is, how does this work? We need a force of tracers so that when someone tests positive, uh, the public health force can then go out and contact everyone that they were in contact with, let that person know that if that they may have been exposed, they should then get tested. We need enough tests to do that. And they should self-quarantine uh, so they don't spread to others we're just not, we're not at that point yet. Uh, there's been great progress. I talked to the public health officials at the state. They're, they're doing the best they can, but we just need to, to do it in a way that's going to permit us to test the number of people, to work with our employers uh, and, and all of Floridians to understand how this needs to work uh, so that we can make sure that we're doing everything we can to prevent another spread, another spike in this once things right. reopen. Yeah. Congressman, uh, the Senate reconvenes tomorrow in Washington. They go back to work, but you and your fellow housemate, House members are not going back to work in Washington. Why is that? And how can all the serious work that you need to do get accomplished if the House and the Senate are not meeting? Uh, well, first, first of all, there's, uh, there's been uh, a whole lot of work that, that gets done every day that has been done, the CARES Act. Um, Provided uh, first $350 billion, and then another. Then we did a follow-up with an additional $300 billion in small business loans. We expanded unemployment. Um, we provided money for the states for hospitals and testing. And uh, so there's there's a lot that's been done. But your question is spot on. Uh, instead of instead of having the conversation about when is Congress going to get back to Washington, uh, I've been working really hard to to impress upon our leadership and my colleagues the fact that. We're in the 21st century. During this pandemic, so many businesses, nonprofits, individuals have figured out how to use technology like this to work remotely. So Congress has, has continued to do its work to pass legislation. What we need to do now is use technology to have hearings, to do oversight, the kind of oversight of the administration that's needed right now. We have technology to do it. We just, and we have, and the Constitution allows us to do it. We just need to, to get on board so that the American people can see Congress doing everything that it normally does in Washington from where we are now. Yeah. That, that's, 
that needs to be the focus right now, and we keep pushing to, to, uh, to make that happen. Well, let me follow up, if I can. <clears throat> Your House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, is talking about a $1 trillion appropriation bill, the latest aid bill, to help out mainly state and local governments uh, who are just dying on the vine because they are getting no tax revenues and they are spending hundreds of millions of dollars uh, on medical and police and fire. You know, cities, counties, states are, are desperate for money and that bill would pass it, but the Republicans are saying, nope, we aren't, you know, we are not in favor of this. What's gonna happen there? Well, uh, Michael, you described it exactly right. This is not, when we talk about, we talk about state and local funding, uh, we included state and local funding in the first bill, but there was, there was no money earmarked for cities of less than 500,000 people. Right. And in South Florida, there aren't any cities with more than 500,000 people. So that's number one. But the, the main point here is we're not talking about sending money uh, to a, a government. We're talking about ensuring that there are funds available to keep our firefighters and our police officers and our teachers uh, and those who are uh, who are out collecting trash and those who are working on the front lines in this in this crisis, the, the heroes and working in public hospitals, that's who we're talking about. And we want to do everything we can to make sure that as state governments and local governments uh, deal with the short, the massive shortfall in revenue because of this pandemic, that all of those people that we rely upon so much uh, don't uh, don't lose their jobs. We don't want them at risk as a result of this uh, this terrible pandemic. Just as we're working hard to protect. Uh, every, small businesses and, and people who have lost their jobs. Congressman, you mentioned, I want to go back to um, a heartbreaking number of deaths from COVID-19 since the beginning. You had written to Governor DeSantis last month mentioning the inconsistencies in the reporting of these numbers. And in fact, right now, there is sort of an issue at hand that the medical examiners in different counties whose, whose counts were higher than the state counts have now been told not to release what we had been getting detailed accounts of how many people have died cause of death COVID-19, which is an, an essential tracking mechanism. Um, if you would weigh in on that sort of what's being called a, a privacy issue, which does not really seem like a privacy issue, more like an open records issue. Yeah, I, I've, I've been clear throughout that the single most important thing for the, the public to get during all of this is transparency from the government. That's true about personal protective equipment, making sure that we know where it goes so that no emergency room doctor or nurse like the ones I talked to last week are asked to wear the same mask five days in a row. And it's true in, it's true in reporting what's happening in nursing homes so that we have all of the information uh, about the deaths, the, the large number of deaths in our nursing homes. And it's especially true here on reporting the number of deaths. The state of Florida doesn't include in uh, in reporting those people who died in Florida from COVID-19 if their permanent residence is somewhere else. And, and I've had conversations with the state. It just doesn't make any sense. Anyone who's watching this would want to know if someone in Florida in their community dies from the virus because that person may have a permanent residence someplace else, but they were living in our community, they were traveling about in our community, potentially spreading the virus in our community, um, and, and there are people in the community who want to mourn for them. I don't understand why we're refusing to acknowledge that. And again, it's not, 
it's not complicated. I, I talked to the Department of Health again about this. The data is there. We should be providing as much information to the people of Florida as we can. That's how they have faith that everything that, that needs to be done to meet these challenges is being done in, in a thoughtful way. Congressman Ted Deutsch of Boca Raton, we appreciate you spending some time with us this morning, and we will follow what happens when you do get back to Washington, I guess, in the next few days. Uh, thanks, Michael. Thanks, Glenn. Good to be with you. Same. Up next, Nikki Fried, the Florida Secretary of Agriculture. She was the only state cabinet member who was not appointed to the governor's reopening task force. We'll ask her about that. those images of crops rotting in the fields or being plowed under and that brought home the disaster COVID-19 has been for the state's agriculture industry. Florida's second biggest with its customer base shuttered restaurants, food service and the tourist industry. Nikki Freed is the Florida Secretary of Agriculture and Consumer Services and she is the only Democrat who holds statewide office. She joins us now from Tallahassee. Good morning, Secretary Freed. Great to see you. How are good you? Morning. Good morning. Good seeing you all, too. Hopefully next time in studio. Yeah. Uh, Secretary <laughs> Freed, uh, the governor named about 100 people across the state to this recovery task force, and he pointedly did not appoint you, the only cabinet member who was not appointed. What was that all about? You know, unfortunately, uh, the governor has made this a partisan issue. Uh, I've been very you know, tough on the governor, trying to hold him accountable from day one, you know, calling on a statewide uh, stay for at home order three weeks before he initiated it. And unfortunately, he played partisan politics when it came to the appointment of the task force. Um, but the reality is, is that I wasn't going to let his partisan politics in the way of me doing my job. Uh, we released a 10 page, 15 point uh, report ourselves and sent it to the governor with advice of different aspects, whether it was dealing with uh, agriculture, the unemployment system, uh, additional testing. Uh, so it's unfortunate that politics has come into play of this. It's, it's heartbreaking where our citizens across the state and across our country are expecting government officials to come together uh, during these times. And unfortunately, that, that's not what's happening here. Secretary, I read those 10 points. You have some, some pretty good ideas, among which bringing to Florida more than what is currently a fraction of the USDA relief that has been voted upon for agriculture, for growers. Another one was uh, to keep going with increased food stamp allocations. Was there any response at all from, from anybody on those? No, not at all. Uh, we've never received any response back from the governor's office or anybody involved in the task force. Um, but again, I've been in communication with every member of the ag community. We have calls uh, twice a week hearing all the different issues that are going on inside of agriculture. And we are collectively uh, working on all of our lobbying efforts in the federal government. Because what's happened is uh, Florida is known for our specialty crops, especially down in South Florida. Uh, we are the second largest when it comes to specialty crops in the entire country. And we're already seeing over half a billion dollars worth of losses in agriculture. And the way that the federal government has allocated the relief program, there's only 2.1 billion assigned to uh, specialty crops. And when you think about that, Florida's got already half a billion, uh, 2.1 isn't gonna scratch the surface of what our agricultural members really need uh, to make sure that they can get enough money in the door uh, to be able to plant for next season. Yeah. Secretary Freed, on Wednesday, the governor rolled out his recovery plan. I read through it. It's about 35 pages, very detailed 
very methodical. It's a safe plan, he says, secure, a modest way to make sure that we don't get out too far ahead. And then I saw that your response to it was you said you thought it was reasonable. Is it reasonable? I hope so. You know, based on what we are seeing, uh, that I hope the governor is sincere with, with the plan. But, you know, as you know, you know, every good plan is all about implementation. Uh, and so I just want to be cautious to see exactly how it's rolled out. Um, we're already hearing a little bit of confusion. We received a lot of calls into our office on Friday uh, from different operators that we regulate, uh, trying to figure out if they fall inside this order or outside the order. Um, so we've been asking for sort of an additional clarification. And I think part of it is making sure that as we start kind of opening up our state, that we've increased testing. And so that way that if we're in, that we're releasing people from, from safer at home, that we're making sure that we don't receive a spike again. Because the last thing we want to do is open up too quickly uh, and not have appropriate testing in place and have to go back into a more restricted method, especially in South Florida. You know, Secretary Freed, we uh, often during the week go and report from what are food lines, the distribution points, uh, Feeding South Florida, I think is the name everybody knows, but there are so many organizations who are trying to get people who are just financially desperate at the moment fed. And then, you know, alternatively, we see this video of the crops being plowed under and no place to put what is grown and so farmers are disposing of it. And it just seemed like such cognitive dissonance. And I know your, your office is sort of the linchpin of, of both and that you've been trying to connect the two. I wonder if you would talk about that and, and whether it's been successful. I mean, have you really moved that needle? Yeah, of course, it's heartbreaking to see both aspects. You know, we know that as unemployment and underemployment continues to rise, we're going to have to feed more people in our state. If unemployment stays between 8 and 13 percent come fall, that's additional 6 to 11 million people that, that are going to need our assistance. And, and then, of course, the heartbreaking of watching the plowing under of so many of our crops and the spilling of milk. And so what we've tried to do is really connect the consumer with the agriculture community by putting together a new web page on our website, which is fx.gov slash keep Florida growing where the agriculture community can upload all of the commodities that they have available. And the consumer can go right onto this website, not only see what commodities are available in their community, but also where all the farmers markets are and the U-Picks. Uh, just the first week that we had this up and running, we had almost 300,000 uh, hits on it. So we're seeing huge success. Uh, and, but the problem is this, is that a lot of our food banks just don't have the storage capacity uh, for so much of these perishable commodities. And when it gets to a farmer, uh, so many of them have donated. I mean, you're seeing all across our entire state, our, our farmers going above and beyond, uh, donating to the food banks, donating to different nonprofit organizations. But at a certain point, um, it just costs a lot of money to take the uh, food off of the vines and off the fields just to know that they're going to receive a significant loss because they have no buyers. Yeah. Uh, but we are pro this is a promising um, adventure that we're going through because uh, at the end of the day, uh, we're seeing a silver lining where, where more of our consumers across the state, I, I call it a conscious awakening, uh, understanding how important it is to support agriculture, to support your local farmers, and to buy local fresh uh, from Florida products and Florida-grown produce. Yeah. Well, South Florida farmers, I think, have been incredibly generous donating their crops to uh, Feeding South Florida and other food banks. Uh, Secretary Freed, the one government agency that I think demonstrably has failed the people of Florida is the Department of Economic Opportunity. People who lost their jobs through no cause of their own, you know, have had a terrible problem getting unemployment payments. Uh, I think at the last time I checked, 
only about a third of the claims had been paid out. Where does this stand now, and how do you feel about this? This is completely unacceptable. Uh, unacceptable. It was a, a design flaw that was purposely designed this way uh, under uh, then Governor Scott, but it continued, unfortunately, under Governor DeSantis. Uh, there was a audit report that was given to the governor back in March of 2019, and, and no action was taken to replace and to fix it and, and to try to bring it up to code. Um, so right now, so many of our, our citizens are struggling. Uh, you know, rent was due this week, uh, electric bills, gas bills. Uh, and really not knowing where the next paycheck can come from. So this is completely unacceptable. And even the ones that have been processed, we saw astonishing numbers last week that 40% of them were declined and claimed that they were ineligible. And I believe from the last thing I looked, uh, the system was back down this weekend. Uh, and that was one of the issues that I addressed in our plan was the increased amount of individuals for the call center, for processing. We even offered some of our own staff, about 30 of four of our own personnel to help with the call center. And unfortunately, the governor played politics with this and declined our assistance. Yeah. Secretary and Nikki Freed, always good to speak with you. I know when you're back in South Florida, one day we'll have you in the studio. But for now, it's great to have you by Skype. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And please be safe down there. Uh, miss my South Florida. <laughs> miss you back. Thanks so much. Uh, before, <laughs> we go to, before we go to break, a, a quick fact check. As we were talking, I was able to look up. The employment system is down to ramp up the payments, and it looks like they're up to three-quarters processed this weekend. Yeah. Uh, so that's a quick update for you right there. Up next, we speak with Fort Lauderdale Mayor Dean Trantalis, so stay tuned. South Florida is enjoying the first weekend since parks and marinas and golf courses across South Florida have reopened. And as you head outside to enjoy those amenities, it's hard to miss some of the changes now in place to stop the spread of coronavirus. Sabella uh, Sabovic is live in Fort Lauderdale where the city leaders have changed things up. Sanella, good afternoon. How are you? Good day to you, Michael and Glenna. It's been a gorgeous day here in Fort Lauderdale. And as you can see, residents are taking notice. They are out on their bikes. Some are skateboarding, enjoying this beautiful day. And officials from the city of Fort Lauderdale did anticipate a larger turnout this weekend. So what they have done is that they have closed one northbound lane of A1A to vehicular traffic so that pedestrians now have a larger space to work with so they can practice proper and safe social distancing. Bright warm sunshine mixed with a gentle breeze. It's a beautiful day along Fort Lauderdale Beach and residents are taking notice. I had not been out of the house a lot, so I am really enjoying it. And weather is perfect, can't get any better. People getting up early this Sunday morning, some enjoying a leisurely stroll while others are riding their bikes and jogging. To accommodate the weekend crowds, one northbound lane of A1A is blocked from Las Olas Boulevard to Sunrise Boulevard, all in an effort to promote social distancing. I like it because I like to walk in the morning and it gives us space where it's a good start, I think. It's hard to be hemmed up for so long. Meantime, in neighboring Hollywood, the beach broadwalk still remains closed to the public. 
Police officers are on site to make sure people stay off of the oceanfront promenade. In Hollywood, because the broadwalk is immediately adjacent to the beach, uh, it makes it challenging to open one but not the other. With parks, trails, and other open spaces closed in recent weeks due to the pandemic, more cyclists have been riding on the streets. But that can be dangerous. Just last weekend, a white pickup truck hit and injured a cyclist on A1A in Hollywood. Police are still searching for the driver who left the scene. And for those of you in Hollywood, city officials are working with the Florida Department of Transportation to see how they could implement what you see here in Fort Lauderdale there along the Broadwalk. We'll keep you posted once we get those details. But traffic is set to go back to normal this evening around 7 p.m. here in Fort Lauderdale. And that's where we are live from this afternoon. Glenn and Michael, I'll send it back to you. Sanella, thank you so much. All right, Broward County, as you all know, has been hit hard by coronavirus. It has sickened more than 5,000 Broward residents and 204 people in Broward have died of COVID-19, which makes this a stepped up testing all the more important there. Fort Lauderdale's mayor, Dean Trantalis, has led the effort to set up a testing site this week at Holiday Park in con uh, conjunction with AMR, that's American Medical Response. They have been busy there. Mayor Trantalis joins us now from City Hall in Fort Lauderdale. Hi, Mayor. Good morning, good morning. Hey, Mayor. So the testing at Holiday Park has been pretty busy since it opened. Uh, there are now sites in well over a dozen places in Miami-Dade and Broward and Palm Beach County. What do you um, what do you make of the amount of people going through there still? We discovered that uh, pent up demand needed to be satisfied. The, we were hearing from the, the national uh, figures, state figures saying that the only way we're going to really combat this disease and the spread of the disease was with increased testing. So we're working aggressively with the governor's office, and I want to thank the governor and his staff for allowing us to work with the National Guard, providing us testing kits. AMR has been the medical uh, um, component of this. So we have seen upwards of 400 new tests done every day since last week, since we started the program. And we're hoping that this will give us a better picture as to whether or not the spread of the disease is actually uh, increasing or decreasing here in our community. Yeah, Mayor Trantellis, I believe I saw in a report uh, that you said in addition to the Holiday Park site, you were hoping to set up a second site uh, somewhere in Fort Lauderdale. How is that going? We do have a second site very close to Fort Lauderdale. It's at the Urban League uh, Center, just on the edge of the city. Uh, basically, it uh, takes on the western part of the city, uh, which again is another state site. Again, it's uh, this in this in this case, it's a walk-up site. You do not need to get into a car. Uh, whereas in Holiday Park, uh, you need to have an appointment, no prescription, no, uh, but just a uh, a, uh, a uh, an appointment. It's been going very well. This, the people in this community have really, really done well. I have to tell you that it's been amazing the response that we received from this community after we shut down our beaches and our and our restaurants and everything back in the middle of March. And I have to say that it was a, it was a risk that we took. We realized that people were going to be upset, but in the end, looking backward, uh, we did the right thing, and I think the community agrees with us. Now, going forward, as you know, people are looking, what are we going to do next? And uh, you can see that the that the success of these efforts, the conduct of our people, has been amazing. The numbers have gone come down considerably. We have almost zero incidents of of COVID-19 and influenza 
and influenza um, uh, symptoms that are reporting to the hospitals. We're at that point now where we're ready to open up. And I don't mean just open up with 25% restaurants and, uh, and, and uh, a spattering of, of, uh, of, you know, opening up with retail and this and that. We really need to start realizing that the people of this community uh, need to, to once again get back to work. Mayor, it, so it sounds like um, you know, it sounds like you're chomping at the bit as so many people are to to really open up and get back to work. But, but nationally and statewide and locally, the metric seems to be two solid weeks of a downtrend. And, and we in South Florida have not seen that yet. We've seen a downtrend. It goes up a little bit. It comes down. It goes up. So the, the downward trend has not been there for that golden metric of two weeks. Well, actually, that's not correct. In fact, I have the metrics right here. And uh, you can see, you can see, look at the downward trend. That's where we're at. In fact, down here, where we're talking about the percentage of new cases in comparison with uh, the tests, we're, we're well within the zone that the uh, that the national government is saying that we need to be within. We went from 10.8% down to 5.4%. We cut it completely in half to in, in, in within the last couple of weeks. So we're there, uh, and we're hoping that the governor and the and the federal government recognize this. And I think that uh, holding back at this point makes no sense. We're looking to a, to a June 1st opening. Uh, we're looking to uh, having our restaurants at 50% capacity and open air restaurants. Uh, we're looking to open up uh, hair salons as well as uh, other businesses. Mayor, can you tell uh, us if I can interrupt? Yes. What, what about sure. the beaches? There are just so many people who love going to the beaches. I'm one of them. And your beaches are immensely popular. When are you going to open your beaches? Well, the governor is the, is the person who has closed the beaches. We started the process back on March 15th when we shut down spring break. But I think we're ready to at least ease our way back into the process. We're, we're ready to, uh, we've opened up uh, one lane of A1A to allow for additional pedestrians. But I think right now, uh, we know that the, the governor's order ends on May 8th. So we want to make sure that that order uh, is not reinstated. Um, we don't expect people to be congregating on the sand. That's not what we're looking for. But I think people should be allowed to walk on the beach. They should be allowed, allowed to uh, exercise on the beach. And I think that uh, I think the community is ready. And I think the numbers uh, bear it out. So quick, quick question, going back to the metrics. If, if the metrics that you're looking at show that there is two weeks of a downward trend, why has the governor stopped Broward County along with Miami-Dade and Palm Beach from being part of tomorrow's reopening? Because he's all ready to open like you are as well. So if those metrics are met, why isn't the governor opening Broward? Well, we need to have that conversation with the governor. And I've been already speaking with our county leaders, and, uh, uh, and I think we're all on the same page there. The governor needs to... Uh, uh, to understand that uh, we're special, we're not, you know, he grouped us with Dade, he grouped us with Palm Beach, and everyone has their issues. Um, but I think overall, our community has really worked well with this. You go into the grocery stores and people are wearing masks, and we'll continue to ask them to wear masks. People go into uh, open areas, and when they know they're going to be within six feet of somebody, they will continue to be asked to wear a mask. Social distancing will be the name of the game for, for weeks and maybe months to come until we have a vaccine. But, but the point is that 
we are ready and the people deserve to get back to work. Rents need to be paid, mortgages need to get paid. We cannot rely on the unemployment system to, to fund people's livelihoods. We here in Broward, especially Fort Lauderdale, are ready to get back to work. Boy, we hear you loud and clear, <laughs> and I suspect a lot of people in Fort Lauderdale agree with you and hope it comes to pass as soon as possible. Thank you. Thanks, Mayor. And still to come, we speak to another mayor, heading south, Miami's Mayor Francis Suarez. He has taken a wait-and-see approach to reopening, mainly wait. We'll talk with him next. So what a difference a city makes. As Miami-Dade County prepared to reopen public spaces this week, its signature city, Miami, stepped in to make a point it would not. Miami's Mayor Francis Suarez documented his own bout with COVID-19 and his recovery. We see him here via Skype. Mayor Francis Suarez, great to see you. Good morning. Great to be with you, Michael. I'm glad. We're glad you're in good health. Uh, Mr. Mayor, you have taken a go-slow approach. You said you don't want to rush into reopening your public spaces, your uh, uh, marinas, your golf courses, your parks, as opposed to Mayor uh, Carlos Jimenez of the county, who has said, yeah, we're ready to do all that. Why is your approach better? Well, I think you articulated a lot of the reasons in the previous segment. Uh, the governor of the state of Florida, who obviously runs the health department for the state, uh, also decided uh, not to reopen South Florida because he thought that it would be too soon. Also, both the federal government and the state government have promulgated criteria. Uh, and that criteria, as far as our analysis is, has not been met yet. And so we are uh, continuing to work with the health department. We're continuing to work with a team of medical experts to make sure that the criteria has been met before we go to phase one. We have actually um, presented a three-phase plan uh, obviously, we put it out there for the public to debate, to discuss. I've gotten a tremendous amount of calls from a variety of different industries. Uh, I do uh, think the county is doing a good job in terms of, of, of getting input from the various different industries and also having uh, doctors interact with them to have a, a safe set of requirements for when we do open up. Yeah, Mayor uh, Suarez, if I can, let me follow up on the point that Glenna made with Mayor Trantellis of Fort Lauderdale. He says the metrics show trending downward for almost two weeks. You look at metrics every day. What do they show you? We actually look at metrics twice a day, um, both on the hospitalization side and also on the on the viral side. And just to give you an example, on, uh, on April 30th, uh, we had the ninth most number of new cases since uh, March 12th, which was basically the day before I got infected, which was March 13th, case number one. Uh, the two preceding days, uh, were two of the lowest uh, number of new cases uh, since also the beginning of this pandemic. So the data is kind of all over the place. Uh, we're looking uh, for guidance, of course, from the Department uh, of, of Health. We also have our own team of experts that are analyzing the data. And I think what's happening is some of it may be caused by the private labs that seem to be collating data and giving it to the department. And maybe that's what's causing some of these uh, peaks and valleys uh, within a very short period of time, which throws off the analysis. You, you know what is happening right now, it seems, just like what was happening weeks ago when the closings started. Miami was among the first, if you, boy, a lifetime ago in March, canceled um, the Ultra Music Fest first before the county closed down. 
And, and so there's this patchwork of rules from countywide to all the individual cities in, in both counties, not just yours. Because Miami is such a signature city and because the rules that you're making are so different from the overall county, and then there's Doral and Coral Gables and Miami Beach and all kinds of cities, I'm sorry if I left yours out, how, how, speak to, if you would, this patchwork by border when really we're all kind of in this together, supposed to be doing the same things to keep ourselves healthy. I think that certainly uh, it would be beneficial if we could have a coherent set of rules and guidelines. I think what happens is you have, uh, you know, a, a, a vastly different set of cities within the county. The county has 34 different cities. Miami is obviously the most urban. And I'll note that it wasn't just Miami that decided not to open up its parks and marinas. It was also Hialeah and Miami Gardens, which are uh, with Miami, the three largest cities in Miami-Dade County. So it seems like the cities with the aggregate populations decided uh, to sort of depart uh, from uh, this decision to open up marinas and parks. And, and the concern that I had was not so much the opening of the marinas and parks. Obviously, those have uh, their own sort of consequences and their challenges in terms of enforcement. I think the concern that I had was I never saw a statement from the county or from anyone from that matter that the criteria was met. Uh, I think the reason why you establish criteria is because you want to have an objective way of making decisions. And the concern that I had uh, was I never heard any statement from the county. Certainly, we haven't heard it from the state. The, the state has said exactly the opposite. The state has said we're not ready. Uh, to open. And so that's the concern that I had. And also understanding that as mayor of the largest city, really the largest city in Florida, because even though Jacksonville has a greater population, that's really a county city. Um, and we have, we're also the city that has the most number of cases, uh, depending on how you look at the numbers, but certainly the most number of cases. So we have to be extra cautious. And I think that's like you said, Glenna, why we were very cautious on the way in. And I think that saved lives and was very beneficial. And we got a lot of recognition for making tough decisions early. Mayor Francis Suarez of the city of Miami, we are glad to speak with you. And I have to say, your decision weeks ago not to hold the Ultra Music Festival turned out to be one of the wisest choices, decisions, uh, I think a public official has made over the last couple of months. Thank goodness you did that. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Glenn. Thanks, Mayor. Up next, Mark Rosenberg. Dr. Mark Rosenberg is president of Florida International University, one of so many schools that won't be having those staged graduations all online. We'll talk to him next. We are so glad you are with us on this Sunday. In the next few weeks, they're going to be bittersweet weeks for college seniors because there will be no famous walk across the stage to receive a hard-earned diploma to the cheers of friends and families. Virtual graduation is one of the many ways co the COVID crisis has changed and is changing higher education. Mark Rosenberg is the president of Florida International University and is joining us now from his office in Southwest Miami-Dade. So good to see you. And, uh, you know, I, we've talked, you know, I have a class of 2020 graduate who won't be taking that walk either. And so uh, fill us in a little bit, if you would, Mark Rosenberg, on, on how FIU is handling this month's worth of graduations. Glenna, first of all, our condolences to victims and their families of this uh, horrible pandemic and virus. Uh, we feel the pain and uh, we're working hard to make sure that the public health is restored and that our prosperity through job creation and employment can be addressed. And in many ways, graduation is very much 
about ensuring that our economy stays strong and robust by graduating highly qualified students. Our virtual graduation, like our regular graduations, is going to be a celebration. And we are very proud of the fact that over 6,000 students will be graduating virtually. Now, it's not as good as your face-to-face -face graduation, but nonetheless, it's a milestone achievement and celebration that we are very, very much looking forward to. Yeah, Dr. Rosenberg, um, I guess it was in March where you said to your students, your faculty, and most of your staff, work from home, work remotely, we will finish the semester uh, online, virtually. Um, now, just late this week, St. Thomas University and Nova Southeastern said that in late August or September, they are going to resume instruction in the classroom. Now, when is FIU going to be able to do that? Uh, we are, uh, as you know, we are offering classes remotely this summer. The university really never shut down. We just went remote. And so this summer, we're offering nearly 4,000 classes remotely. We expect over uh, 40,000 students like we had last summer. And we are looking forward to a fall uh, resumption of uh, populating uh, our campuses. However, we will follow best practices as set up by the CDC, the State Board of Health, and the, the Florida Board of Governors. So we're working with the Florida Board of Governors to establish standards that all of the univer public universities should be hitting. There is no doubt that we will be in a new normal, but we are excited about finding newer and better ways to respond so that the learning process continues for our students. You know, university system, colleges among pretty well everybody who has taken such a financial hit over the past couple of months and in the CARES Act and the relief package, one of them yes. uh, for universities, Florida International got $38.3 million mm -hmm. of that, actually more than University of Florida, more than FSU, more than almost all the universities in Florida except for two, That's one right. of them being Miami-Dade College. Take us yeah. through, if you would, how FIU will be using that money and spending that money. Uh, first of all, what's most critical to us is ensuring that no students drop out because of the financial difficulties. Student success is what we are all about. Uh, about 19 million will be directed to students who are eligible, first of all, through the Pell process, and second of all, just by uh, applying to us and, and indicating that they need help. Uh, so we're, we're in the process now of making those funds available. We also have an emergency fund, FIU Strong, that has already offered about 250 grants. And as you know, in addition to that, through the South Beach Wine and Food Festival, the Chaplain School, we've made funding available to independently owned restaurants in the community and to the staffs of those restaurants. By the way, many of, many of those individuals are our students as well. So we're finding multiple ways to address the challenges, but we're, we're yeah. particularly grateful to the U.S. Congress for allocating this funding. Yeah, President Rosenberg, we wish we had more time. I know you're a loyal viewer of This Week in South Florida. It's yes, great to have you on. We'll see you again, I hope, in happier days. Thank you Thank very you, much. Thank you, Glenna. Thank you. Thank you, and stay tuned. We'll be right back.
We want to thank you for spending this hour with us as we navigate the effects of the COVID-19 crisis. We are online, as you know, 24-7 at local10.com, so please do stay in touch. We are with you all the way, every step of the way, and we are going to get through this together. And remember, as always, stay informed, get involved, and here is a socially distanced fist bump. <laughs> we'll see you next Sunday. Have a great day.